You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. My name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And uh, particularly excited this morning to continue our series, which we've titled God's Story of Creation to restoration. And we see that story through the book of Genesis, which we started a few weeks ago, but we're particularly this morning going to see that story through the whole book of the Bible. And so we've paused now after we've been in Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to come to some specific things that we want to talk about and we want to see together. And it's going to be beautiful that we're going to get to walk through just some pieces of God's Word to show you that God is a God who, yes, created, but He also is a God who restores His creation. And we preach through books of the Bible, through the Bible, because we want to see what God has to say, not what I have to say or Pastor Ryan has to say. We want to hear God and hear from Him in His Word and then submit our lives to it. We believe the Bible has something to say. And if you're not a Christian today, I pray that you will see this as a place for you to ask questions. It's a safe place to get to know who God is, who He says He is, and who His people are, and that we may be people who love Him with all that we are. So, as we start this morning, I want you to think for just a moment. Think of someone who uh, gets off the plane at RDU. They step off the plane, and you pick them up, and you ask them, where do you want to go? I can show you any place in Wake Forest or Youngsville or Franklin Center, Raleigh. What, where would you like to go? And he says, show me Christ and RDU. Show me Christ in Wake Forest or Youngsville. And you say, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll take him to Covenant Hope Church on Sunday morning and show him Christ. And we come and we sing beautiful songs and we pray and we hear God's word read. And, and, he, and, he, and he ends his day and he says to you, wow, we have seen Christ. And maybe on a second Sunday, he sees us eating and enjoying time together. And he says, wow, I have seen Christ in the fellowship of these people. And you think, absolutely. He, we have seen Christ. But then he, he comes back to you and says, show me Christ in another place. So he, you take him to Luddy Park in downtown Youngsville. And he sees people playing baseball. And he sees people walking around the, the park. And, and he says, show me Christ. And, and you, instead, you take him to the restaurants in Wake Forest, and you, you show him what's going on. You take him by the bowling alley. You take him uh, to, to the schools, and he says, show me Christ. And you, you're, you're asking, what, what does he want to see? And so you ask him, sir, what, what, why do you keep asking to see this? We've, you've already seen Christ in our church. I want to see Christ in every aspect of God's world. I want to see Christ in every part of your lives. Uh, you, you, you seem as a people to worship him greatly on Sundays. You, you seem to have fellowship and your, your people seem to love each other. But where is Jesus in every other hour of the week? Church, we come to that question. Where is Jesus in every other hour of the week? Where do we see Christ magnified in every part of our lives, and not just in our lives, but every part of our society, from the schools and the hospitals to the theater to the arena? Where is Christ? 
the only place that we will see Christ is in God's people working in the world. To see Christ magnified with everything we do. Not just coming here and singing praises and hearing God's word. And so as we slow down this morning, I want to show you the whole story of restoration. From garden to city, from sin to redemption. I want you to see that every part of your life has meaning. That you can, as the psalmist says in Psalm 67, you can walk in his ways and invite the whole world to as well. And then, I want you to walk in faithfulness. I want you to be faithful to God's ways, Christ's ways, that you've been invited into this story. And so as we walk through the different passages this morning, I want to do again some biblical theology. Let's take Genesis 1 and 2, and let's see how it runs through the whole Bible. So here's what we're going to see. As the main character of the Bible, God deserves to be worshipped from all of his creation. And humanity is invited to cultivate world worship. And if you're a disciple today, if you've been a disciple for a long time or maybe a short time, Hear this truth. You are invited to worship God and advance the worship of God for the good of God's world. You're invited to worship. You're invited to advance worship. You're invited to advance this worship because it is good for the world. Why? Why is it good for the world? Because this is the right response of creation. Worship is the right response of a creature you and me. We all worship, and we all worship something. Every culture on the planet is pointing people to worship something. Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it Buddha? Is it self? Is it science? Is it the earth? Whatever it is, we are called and made to worship. And what sin has done is it's distorted that worship and it now begins to be perverted. But we are called to walk in his ways, as Deuteronomy 10 says. So I want to show you four principles of worship through the Bible. Four principles of worship through the Bible. We're going to start here in Genesis 1 and 2. So, principle number one. God commands worship to spread everywhere. God commands worship to spread everywhere. In Genesis 1, particularly in uh, verses 26 or 28, we see an amazing culmination of God's creation. Remember the story leads us to the pinnacle of God's creation as humanity is made. It's his handiwork, but that's just it. Humanity may be the crown jewel of creation. We are still his creation. We are still his creation. And humanity is commanded by God to spread the worship, his worship, all around the world. Why, though? Why? should worship spread all across the world. Because worship begins with God. Often in these first two chapters, we talk about cre the creation narrative. And unfortunately, what that does, is it, it makes us think about us. It makes us think about this stuff in the world. But in reality, it should be about God. Remember, when we were in chapter 1, God, his name is mentioned at least 30-some times. He's the main character of the story. He owns all the stuff. He's the sustainer of the universe. Creation is just a great symphony hall for God to play. 
It is the arena in which God gets to show off his talents. It is the Madison Square Garden. It is the most wonderful place that God gets to show who he is. And to that fact, worship does not begin with us. Worship does not, does not begin with us. Worship begins with God. And by his act of creation, God now initiates worship. What do I mean by that? God creates because he's all-loving, all-powerful, and all-good. Our God deserves all the glory the universe can even muster. It isn't that God is needy. Rather, God is the foundation of life, love, and joy, which flow into worship. And our God wove into the very fabric of creation the themes of praise and worship so that we might participate in giving him the glory that he deserves. Think about it when Jesus says, even, even if you don't praise God, these stones will cry out. The whole universe is made to magnify who God is. And once we understand that, that worship starts with God, and we may understand our role in creation, how we worship, and how it can grow to its full potential. So how do we do that? How does worship spread? How does it grow? Well, God gives what, what theologians call the cultural or creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's a mandate, something we're supposed to do. So look there at verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, look at, at verse 26. Something astonishing happens. Humanity is not only created, they are created in the image of God. And that, at the very least, means that we are moral and rational creatures. We have responsibilities. But more than that, we have a responsibility to magnify God's benevolent and generous rule. When a king placed his statue or image of himself in a region, the king was establishing, I own this land and everything in it. I have the authority and the right to rule here, even if I'm not there, even if I'm absent. So humans now are the representation of God. We now get to image God in his likeness in the created world. The image of God shows our relationship with him. We are not just some, some creature, but we are his created under kings and stewards to subdue the world to bring him glory. And God doesn't need little wooden idols to be made for him. No, because he has made the world and placed his image on the world. You and me. And the likeness of God shows our relationship to the world. We are to be like God, ruling with care in his name and to champion his purposes, not our own. It is this kingly priest task that we are able to unwrap the gift of God. That we understand that creation is a gift that God has given to us. And now we get to take it and unwrap it and we get to offer it back to him. Think about it parents with you, when your kids what happens on christmas we just we just entered out of the, the christmas season our kids they unwrap those toys right and most of the time they have those those stinking little ties on the back of them and you have to take everything you have just to cut those things out to get able for your children to play with them right and you probably cut yourself doing it 
but your children. They enwrap the gift, and it's all this potential. It's all this potential. So what do they do with it? They bring it to you. Daddy, please take this apart. Please fix this. Please make this work. Put batteries in it. What, 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 are, we, what are they saying? Bring this to its full potential so that I can enjoy it. And that's exactly what we've been given in God's creation. A gift now that we get to unwrap to glorify God. It is this humanity now that God speaks to in verse 28. Look there at verse 28. It's often referred to as the culture, as I said, cultural or creation mandate. But it's more than just a command. It almost could be a covenant. What do I mean by that? It's a covenant because we have all the things needed for one to be ratified. Look, look there. You have people, fill the world with worshipers. You have possession, the land. This, this world is yours. The kingdom is yours. You have protection. Obey me and you will have life forever. And you have promise in verses 30 through 31. I will protect you. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve. So look there. Read with me. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Notice, first and foremost, God blesses Adam and Eve. And remember, when God blesses something, He is providing the divine ability to obey His commands. This is the first piece of the cultural mandate. Without God's blessing, nothing else could follow. We could do nothing. We could not unwrap the gift. We could not do anything with it. But secondly, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Notice back in verse 27. God made humanity in His image. And He did this in male and female. The ability to do what God has asked stems from God's design. From his created order. They need one another. And together they are able to spread worshipers around the world to continually point creation to God and cultivate worship. Now let's pause for just a second right there. Think with me. What does multiply mean? It means to have children. It means to produce people. To reproduce. So that the worship of God spreads. But we live in a culture that makes, makes children commodities or inconveniences. The number of children being born in our society is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. No wonder things don't thrive the way they should. Because we have ignored God's mandate. The children should be should be produced and grown and trained and raised for God's glory. The Bible is clear that children are a blessing. Now, in these situations about having children, couples, families, you should use wisdom when it comes to this. It doesn't mean we throw wisdom out the door. But in, in our society, what we should do is we should get behind the motivation for not having children. What, what is holding us back? Is it a job or a career? Is it the inconvenience of having to care for children? Is it selfishness? Those are the motivations we have to dismantle. And we have to show that no, this is God's world, and this is the way He has designed it, and this is good for us and good for the world. 
And so we must use wisdom in growing our families. We must show grace to one another, especially those who may not be able to have children. We must be kind and generous towards them. But most of all, we must use grace when we talk about these things and hold intention that this is God's design. This is the way God has made things. So we've seen God bless it. We've seen God say to multiply and fill the earth, exactly what God did in chapter 1. And then thirdly, God tells them to rule or subdue the earth. Some of your translations may, may say have dominion over the earth, over God's creation. And as God's king priest, the stewards of all that he has done, all he has made, we have a responsibility now to care for his creation. These words rule and subdue have the idea of shaping and forming and bringing to one's control. And of course, this is not done in a harsh manner, but in the same way God did in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Humanity has been given dominion over all of God's creation. He literally wants the control to be in our hands. But it's not for our good, but for the good of the world, for the good of God's creation. To rule or have dominion means to unearth treasure. It means to bring to its fullest potential so that it can glorify God with every atom that it's made of. That is what God has called us to do, to have dominion, to, to use it well and to steward it well so that we may worship God fully and that the world may worship God fully. God has created the universe with a purpose, to worship Him. And then God designed our world to be developed and cultivated for more worship. And then finally, God is actively involved in His creation, helping it worship God was a missional God way before the fall. He sent Adam and Eve on a mission to cultivate the world so it would produce more worship of God that would ever be possible. And church, lean in really close here. We either order the world to worship God more or we order it away from Him. It's, 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 there's only two options. We either order it to worship Him more or away from Him. God has commanded for worship to spread, and it's the right response of us as God's creation, as his stewards. But what does worship actually look like? We can talk about the word worship. What does it actually look like? So it leads us to our second principle. God has made us to worship him in everyday life. God has made us to worship him in everyday life. When God commanded worship to spread all across the world, he wove not just worship into the fabric of creation, but he made humanity with the ability and the final goal of worship. It's who we are. We are to be worshipers and to rightly worship God properly. And so we understand that we are made as worshipers. Look now at Genesis 2.15. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and planted him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. If you'll remember, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Ryan walked through the, the, the garden narrative. And there were so many images and themes in the story. But one of those major ones was this image of a temple. Right? Pastor Ryan told us that the Garden of Eden is God's cosmic temple. And this is a place where people can worship because his presence resides there. And so if Eden is God's temple and worship happens in temples, what does God do? 
Remember, he doesn't just make idols to set in his temple. No, he puts the very image of himself in us. His image and his likeness. You may be thinking, what does that have to do with gardening? What is working and keeping a garden? What does that have to do with worship? Everything. Look, look there at, at those words in Genesis 2.15. Those words, watch and work, to work and watch or to cultivate and keep, however your translation talks about it, are used in the Old Testament and they can absolutely mean to cultivate, till the ground, keep and care for the garden. Absolutely, those words mean that. But when they are used together, they are never used in an agricultural sense, in a farming or gardening. They're never used that way when they're used together. And you might ask, well, where are they used together? They're used in Numbers and Leviticus to talk about the priest in the tabernacle, the temple. That this is what they're supposed to do, to watch over and keep. They have a greater meaning to worship and obey together. And Adam is absolutely meant to keep and work and to care for this garden, but he is able to do that in a worshipful way. Working and watching over the garden is an act of loving obedience and worship towards God. The proper way to understand Genesis 2.15 is that God placed Adam in the garden to worship and obey him through the cultivation and keeping of that garden. We all have jobs. We have jobs that God has given to us. We, we might call that our vocation, our career. But this is God-given. This is not something that we have attained on our own. God is in control of these things. And so God says, in every aspect of your life, worship and obey. Worship and obey. And, and there's a couple thoughts here. Work is not a bad thing. Work's not a bad thing. Work is not a sin thing. Work is not something that is only here because of sin. Although when I was a kid, I really thought that. It's before the fall. Right? And work is a way for us to worship in everyday things. And cleaning the counter off for you stay-at-home moms. For the nurses that are changing fluids and caring for, caring for injuries. For teachers who tell that same child, please quit talking four times every day. For the managers who oversee those who work under them. Every aspect of what we do is worship. And we're either cultivating the worship of God and pointing creation to Him or we're pointing it to something else. Ourselves or others. Are we pointing people to God? Our vocation, our work is where the arenas that God has placed us in. They're good. We get to worship Him through these things. So may we stop. And may we ask God. May we pray to Him and say, God, would you let me see my job? my task, and all that I do is a way to worship you, no matter what it is. And no task, unfortunately, our, our, our society talks about, we, we begin to, to, to level out what jobs are better than others. And that's not true. Because God has given every piece of this universe, every job, every task is good. Because it's enabled to serve others and point them to worship God more. 
And when we see our jobs as worship, we're enabled to worship God rightly and holistically. So let me give you a picture of that. What, what does Genesis 1, 26-28, what does Genesis 2, 15 look like in our world? And we can obviously see that the worship of God is not fully maximized, is it? We can walk around downtown, we can, we can think of our own lives. Worship is not fully maximized, is it? Next week we're going to see why that is in Genesis chapter 3 and how Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. But God still enables him to worship. He still enables people to worship. So we might ask, what does a good world filled with God's worshipers look like? How does that world flourish? Well, I want to call your attention to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. And some of you are probably familiar with this, this chapter because you know Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, for you to prosper, right? But we miss all the stuff that comes before it, which are, which are kind of bad. They're not great. All right, so in this story, God had, God's people have failed to worship God rightly. So they lose their land, the people, and God's protection. But in the midst of their failure, they do not lose God's promise. And on their way to Babylon, their own prophets are telling them, hey, hey, we're not going to be here very long. Don't stay. Don't, don't unpack your things. We're going to leave here. But they're false. They're false prophets. But Jeremiah is walking with them. I can imagine Jeremiah, who's, who's been rejected, who, who they don't believe, they don't, they don't trust him. God said, you know what? I want you to preach to these people. By the way, they're going to be they're going to be taken captive. They're not going to listen to you. And so Jeremiah's walking with them to Babylon, and he's telling them, he's reminding them of what God has said. He's telling them the opposite. You're going to be here for 70 years. You're going to be in captivity, and you're going to be away from the land that God had promised that you rebelled against God. So what should they do? Well, what did Jeremiah tell them to do? Four things. Build houses, plant gardens, find wives, have children. Does that sound familiar to you? Worship and obey. Cultivate and keep. Watch over. Have children. Why does he say that? Look at verse 7 of chapter 29. He says, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. In the midst of our fallen world, when they were in captivity and their society and people were destroyed, Babylon comes through and wipes them out. And God says, pursue their well-being. Why? Because when that city thrives, you thrive. When your enemy thrives, you thrive. That's the upside-down economics of God's kingdom that I don't understand. But it's what a world full of God's worshipers do. When we help our community and our world, we able to thrive. We point them back to God so that they can worship Him. When we shape our community with goods and services and products and relationships, we help it thrive to advance the worship of God by loving Him and loving our neighbor, by living faithfully in His world. This isn't just for evangelism, but it's stewarding all of God's world so that others flourish in it. And so that God's creation may know him once again. And they may worship him. Church, we live in Babylon. This is much more our context than Jerusalem. 
Are we helping people thrive towards God and worshiping Him? Or are we shrinking back? Are we living a worshipful life? Or are we being consumed by our own society and our own dreams and our own goals? Do we see our jobs as opportunities to steward how someone sees Christ in the world? Teachers, how do you reflect Christ in the classroom? Managers, how do you, how do you reflect Christ in your leadership? Nurses, what about the hospital? Salesmen, do you sell things, products, with your neighbor in mind? That's the question. That's what world worship looks like. Do we love our neighbors so that they may worship God and, and, and actually get to know him? Earlier in, in the book of Jeremiah, he, buy, he buys a deed to a plot of land in Jerusalem. He buys the deed, but they're getting shipped out, so he buries the deed, and he leaves it. And you're like, why would he do that? He's never going to come back to it. He's going to be dead. That's the point. Are we willing to live faithfully in God's ways even if we don't see change? Sociologists say that it takes 70 years for society to completely change. 70 years. That's a whole generation. Are we willing to bury the deed and to live faithfully in the ways that God has called us to live and let the results be left up to God? Are we going to fight and claw our ways in our own ways to try to change things? Are we going to trust Him and live faithfully for Him? May the worship of God drive everything we do. And may we trust God and be faithful to Him. Now, if God has made us to worship in everyday life, what about sin? What about Genesis 3? What about the world that we experience now? It brings us to our third principle. God has ensured worship can happen through Christ. God has ensured worship can happen through Christ. As I told you, we obviously look around the world and we see sin and we're like, this is not what we experience. We do not experience the Genesis 1 and 2 world. And we see that their world isn't the way it should, should be. It's not thriving. It's not worshiping God in every, everyday life. As I said, next week we're going to talk about man's sin. And Romans 3.23 accurately puts in, in, in picture for us what, what this means. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. This is the reality that we live in. We're not able to worship God rightly. And he demands worship a specific way. We don't get to outline it ourselves. We don't get to make it up ourselves. He calls us to worship in a specific way. The prophets talked about this as obedience and love that only comes from the heart. Instead, sin perverts that and distorts it, and worship begins to be directed towards idols or towards ourselves. And we see this impact every aspect of society, in our governments, in our entertainment, in our workplaces, in our relationships, all the way to death. Sin has corrupted every piece of our world. But the gospel enables us to worship again. Jesus enters into our world with flesh and blood. He enables us to worship rightly. Jesus being fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life, obedient and worshipful, he gives himself for us so that we might be reconciled to God. This is once again a gift from him. Salvation is a gift that we might receive it and be used to, to offer it back to God, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. That we're not just made 
We're not just saved from sin, but we're made for good works. It's the same thing that Paul's pulling from. And by the grace of God, through right relationship with Jesus, we are enabled to pursue the worship of, of God again. Redemption leads us back to our true goal, which the Garden of Eden was directed towards anyways in the first place. And remember from Genesis 2.15, worship is always connected to obedience. And in Christ, we are restored with the ability to obey God and his task and calling all of humanity to submit and obey Christ through faith. And so God has ensured the worship. He ensures worship that can happen. And he does this through this disciple-making, through the Great Commission. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 28. It's the first book of the, of the New Testament. Let's just look really clear. At the end of that, at the end of that book, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been raised from the grave, and he, and, he, and he brings his disciples, he gets them together. And this is what he says in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. For those who have been reconciled and restored to God, there is once again an engagement in God's task. I want you to see that Matthew 28 is directly tied to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's not just the Great Commission, it's the recommission of God's people. God is not taking a physical world and inserting spiritual things into it. That's not what he's doing in Matthew 28. No, no, he's reclaiming every inch, both physical and spiritual, piece of this universe and saying, this is mine. And I'm calling you now into that. I'm going to throw up a little grid up here. I want you, I want you to see this. I want you to see, I want you to see the, the same thing in Genesis 1 and in Matthew 28. In the beginning, God, meaning he has all authority. Matthew 28, Jesus has been given all authority. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Same thing. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. What do we see in Genesis 1? They're image bearers who are like God, who, who have his likeness. And Jesus says, baptize in the triune name. That they are now made in the, into the image of Jesus Christ. Old Testament, worship and obey. New Testament, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It's the same thing. And Jesus, what he does is he, he reclaims every piece of this universe so that it can be directed to worship God more and more and more for all of eternity. And in a transforming society with people who have been transformed by Jesus, God is going to work in and through us. We may not see it, we may never see it, but God is working through us. And we're called to subdue his world by evangelism and disciple-making. To grab, subdue the hearts of people who are far from him. To help them see that they now can be made right and to worship him. We don't have to choose between disciple making or culture making. Because in Christ, we claim every inch of this world. And as disciples were gathered into local churches, and the church now is a cultural making machine. We, have, we, have the, we do things a certain way. But may it be shaped by God's ways. 
And we should now be impacting our culture by living faithfully in how God has asked us to live in all areas of life, in our jobs, in our families, in going to the park, in playing sports. Everything should be transformed because we have been made new. That every aspect of our society sees Christ. Teachers and nurses and accountants and coaches all through the power of Jesus show Christ. But remember, the way God does things is flipped upside down. Living faithfully doesn't always look like winning. Remember, our Savior beat death by dying. He suffered and was killed. It may not look like much, but in that event, everything was enabled to be restored to him. And although we may never be able to change every piece of our world, totally or on our own, one day God will. One day God will. And worship will culminate in his new world, which brings us to our fourth principle this morning. God will restore all creation so that worship, that we may worship God forever. He's going to restore creation so that we can worship God forever. I want to bring you to the end of your Bibles, to the book of Revelation. And I want to show you the end of the story. Remember, Genesis is telling a story not just about creation, but about God. And about a God who created. Revelation is about the same God who does what he says he will do. He finished what he starts. So look there at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. The Apostle Paul was writing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's our world. And the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. As we, and as we walk through the rest of, this, rest of this vision, verse 3, it says, God's dwelling is with humanity. God will be with us. And he says, I will wipe every tear away from our eyes. In verses 9 through 14, the city is described in a perfect way. The dimensions are perfect. The way it looks is perfect. The foundation is perfect. The security is perfect. There is no better city. There is nothing else we need. And in verse 22, there is no temple. Why? Because God and Christ are there. This is where God's people will worship him. On a new earth, in a new city. And, and so much so they don't even need light. God is with his people. And it is beautiful and magnificent. And then we get into chapter 22. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see the garden that was supposed to be cultivated and kept, to be worshipped in and obeyed in? It's the new city. It's the city of, of Jerusalem with God in the new heavens and new earth. When Jesus comes back, he will do what he said. 
when God gave Adam and Eve a task to cultivate this garden, what would we expect it to become? A city. And even though we messed that up, God said, I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to give you a city, and you're going to reign with me, and you're going to worship forever. God does what he says he will do. And our God is faithful. And we get to experience this. We get to worship forever. The new Jerusalem will be the city where God and his people live together. There will be no more sin, no more pain, and worship will continue for eternity. As I said, the garden in Genesis 2 is now a perfect city, holy and secured with the presence of God. The worship of God will happen forever. We have the opportunity to worship him now and to spread that worship through disciple-making and living faithfully where he has placed us. The question is, are, are we willing to? Are we willing to live faithfully and to call people to worship him and to trust that living like God has asked will do something in the end? Not because it's on us, but because it's on God. And church, as we walk through Genesis, we're going to see all kinds of horrible things, all kinds of, of, of interesting things, all kinds of ways in which God is faithful. That's what I want you to see. That through the midst of the brokenness, God is committed to restoring every part of this universe and calling people to worship him and calling people to love him and enabling people to worship him forever. Will we be a church, not just on Sunday mornings, but in every hour, in every inch of our world, be people who worship God. Pray with me. God, what a beautiful story that you've been writing for, for forever, since you created, and you will write it, and you will make it happen. It will come to pass, as we sang this morning. Your word is true and faithful. God, I pray that we will be a people who worship you and advance the worship of you all over the world not just for our good but for the good of everyone because this is what we were created to do it's what we were created to be and when we worship other things we are we are destroying ourselves so may we worship you with all that we have and may we help others worship you with all that they have so that you may be glorified and magnified God, would Covenant Hope Church be a church that is impacting every aspect of our world? I ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.